0: And we're all capable of more. And the best part is, how much more is up to you. And once you realize that limitations are mostly just a mental perception, you might realize you're capable of just about anything you set your mind to. I personally think the only failure is looking back and asking yourself what if what if I had tried you're gonna have setbacks not everything can go perfect but in retrospect you will look back at those previous attempts as laying the foundation and helping you achieve what you're going after today Yeah, that's that's one of my biggest fears probably is not even attempting it's not not accomplishing the goal because there's so much you get to experience from that, but it's looking back and thinking myself capable of something and not even going for it for whatever reason. I think that's, that's failure. I'm becoming more comfortable with just about any audacious goal at this point. So get after it. Don't forget to dream. Don't forget to dream big. Don't forget to go after what inspires you. Don't be afraid to be unique. Don't be scared to try something new. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training.
1: Great cause. Oh, thanks man. I respect the shit out of that, man. So
0: you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. And that was a moment I I can look back on now, and uh, that was one of my favorite moments, getting a foot massage by Hayden at mile 62. This is um, a fan of yours, and I'm
1: just calling in to express my admiration. It's Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Mako, and we are live. And you're listening to Training for Ultra podcast. This is Anime Flynn, and I'm here talking to Training for Ultra podcast. Yeah. It's like, really, I just need to catch up with Rob. 100 miles is not that far. I, I thought oh. it was a joke, actually. It, it is. I thought it was one of your jokes, yeah. It is a joke. Okay.
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> so classic. Oh, my God. you Because literally, thing would be like, beep, beep, beep. Mother, mother, beep. Mother, mother, beep, beep. Mother, beep, mother, Beep, mother, beep, beep, beep. beep, beep, beep. One two one
1: two three four. <laughs> Training for Ultra podcast. I'm Sally McCrae, also known as Yellow Runner. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra podcast.
0: Welcome to episode one sixteen of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra, and we have kind of a unique, cool episode. I think Adam Scully Power. He does Uberman, and I'll let the interview explain what Uberman is, but. Adam was a super nice guy, really well-spoken, and it was a fun interview. I think it was unique. You guys will enjoy it. Quick shout-out, abbreviated sponsor shout-out here, Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, ExoSkin, Destination Trail, Ultimate Direction, and thank you to the Patreon supporters. And the book and wrap are available on trainingforultra.com. Let's get straight to it. Enjoy episode 116 with adam scully power i'm joined by adam scully power and man this guy's had some pretty epic races i had to have him on i saw your most recent race i'll admit that's where i first was kind of uh, inclined to reach out so thanks for joining me on the training for ultra podcast adam
1: uh thanks for having me rob i'm a i'm a big fan and i've been following your journey as well and congrats on uh, your triple crown this year That's a, it's it's a big, big accomplishment. I know
0: it's cool. It's, it's this little fraternity sorority that we have, um, common, common suffering like a few, few have gone through. So you've, you've done that. What you did the triple crown last year. Is that right?
1: I did the triple crown, uh, last year and finished barely, but, but finished. And it was, uh, it, it was an amazing experience. Um, filled with a lot of really amazing people that I met along the way.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's it's weird because, like, initially with ultra running, for me at least, it was the race was the experience. And then slowly over time, it turned into, like, the new, like, friendships. And the people turned into the memories for the most part.
1: I think that's exactly right. And, in fact, um, a friend that I met through the Triple Crown last year – actually came out and helped crew for the last day of my most uh, most recent race. And um, reuniting with him was fantastic. So it's uh, it it very much is the people and the friendships you meet through the process.
0: So let's tease it what your most recent race has been. What what did you do recently?
1: (laughs) So I just finished um, about two weeks ago, a ultra triathlon that is called and known as uh, the Uberman ultra triathlon. And it's considered one of the toughest endurance races in the world. Um, so I was pleased to have finished it. I, I, you never know going into something like that if if you can get through it. But um, but fortunately enough, I, I did finish and uh, and surpass even my own expectations and, and what I thought I could do. And we'll we'll
0: dive into that. I mean, we'll dive into what the heck that even is here shortly. But so take us back into. I I really like your story because I, selfishly, I kind of relate, you know, like, uh, were you a bigger guy before you got into endurance sports and like, how long ago was this? And kind of walk me through that.
1: Yeah, I, um, I guess like I've always been athletic throughout my whole life. I I played football and in, in high school and, um, played rugby in college coming out of college. You know, I, did a few, um, small triathlons and and whatnot. But over time, what tends to happen is life takes over. And I found myself, um, about seven years ago, kind of middle-aged. Um, I'm a guy, I've got four kids. I was working nonstop, traveling a lot, you know, eating out, um, for work and, and candidly, I found myself 50 pounds overweight, um, and sort of had this midlife crisis that said, I've got to make a change. Um, and what ended up happening was I watched a documentary with my wife called Forks Over Knives. And in essence, it's a documentary, very popular, that advocates a more plant-based um, eating uh, approach. And And so I gave it a try uh, for three months. The first couple weeks was almost what I envisioned like going through a detox to be like. And then weight started coming off, I had all this extra energy, and so I started to run more, really just to burn the extra energy. Um, My journey into ultra, ultra racing really stemmed from a single morning in a coffee shop where I walked in and I saw a friend of mine, his name is David. And David was the guy in town who did all these crazy, epic ultra endurance races. And at the time, I really didn't know very much about it. Um, But when I saw him, I asked the natural question, hey, David, you know, what are you training for these days? And he started explaining this ultra marathon that he was getting ready for. And he was so passionate and so excited about it. And he just stopped mid-sentence and he looked me square in the eyes and he said, you should do it with me. And. You know, that moment is is what I often call the affirmational nudge, where somebody believes something in you that you may not at the time even believe in yourself. And long story short, about two months after that encounter in Starbucks, I ended up towing the line with him uh, and did 110 mile ultra. And that was my very first one. <laughs>
0: um, I love it. That's so, and it's so extreme, it's, but it's kind of beautiful.
1: <laughs> I, I guess I guess it is, but but from that moment on, it fundamentally fundamentally changed my perspective on kind of what's possible, and it's the, this idea that we are capable of so much more than we than we think. Um,
0: I couldn't agree as, more. We we got to check we're not related here. Uh, sounds sounds like I have my brother on the phone here. Um, I, I totally agree, man. It's it's crazy. Um, what was going through your head when he told you that it was a hundred and ten mile ultra? Like, was there like fear that went through you? Did you just jump in and like learn how to swim in the deep end? I mean, well, what what was kind of like what was going through your head there? And walk me through the logic. If I had there was no, any.
1: I had no sense of what it really was. Um, what, what, what happened was, you know, when he, when he stopped, he looked at me, and said, you should do it with me. I, I thought he was, I thought he was crazy, but a seed was planted. And so later that day I sent him an email, which said something like, how do you even do that? And what he responded was, he, was his training plan. And, um, and so I, I took that information and I took that seed of an idea and because I had been dropping weight and I had this extra energy, I just started to run more. And um, I sort of jumped along and, and said, "I'm going to give this a try, not knowing if I could actually finish, um, but ended up finishing, and I, I, this was a few years ago, it was a little bit over twenty four hours. And you know, coming across that finish line for that first ultra from where I was, you know, not that long before fifty pounds overweight, having dropped all the weight and then doing this as I said a second ago, it really changes your perspective in your mind on what you think is possible. And what ended up happening after that is we went on um, to do a number of other races. We did the Keys 100. Um, A group of us got together and we did the Rim to Rim to Rim across the Grand Canyon. Uh, And then my, my, my next sort of really big race after that happened right after the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, My friend David, who sparked this journey into endurance sports, was running in the Boston Marathon. It was the year that the bombing took place. And, And as soon as I heard it on the news, my first reaction was to call him. All the phone lines were dead. Nothing would go through. So I sent him a simple text that said, you okay?" with a question mark. He ends up sending me a response back saying, yes, blast happened in front of me. And where he was when the blast took place was on Boylston Street, not that far from the finish line. He took out his phone, took a a single photograph of Boylston Street, and he sent me the photo. Um, This was Marathon Monday. We really didn't think anything of, of the time from the photo. And a couple of days passed. It was Wednesday night, and something triggered inside of me where i said i feel like i should do something and i didn't know what that something was Um, but i got this crazy idea which is there's a race in massachusetts it's actually a charity bike event called the pan mass challenge and what it is is about five thousand people bike across the state of massachusetts over two days they do the first half in one day then they'll sleep in an army uh, barracks get get up and do the second uh, half the other day and so two days after the Boston Marathon, I looked up the, the person who ran the Pan Mass Challenge. I sent him an email that said something to the accord of, I'm sure you don't get an email like this every day after <laughs> what just happened yeah. in the marathon this week. I'd like to do your Pan Mass Challenge this year, but instead of biking it, I'd like to run it as a tribute to all the victims of Boston. Um, think about it, and if you're interested, let me know. What happened, Rob, was the following morning, he calls me and said, I don't think you understand what this is. This is a bike event. We don't run it. And I said, <laughs> no, I, I get that. But, but I tied in and explained with the marathon, and, and he agreed. He said, you know, actually, this is a really good idea. Um, and so he, I got his sign-off to do it. It was a 163-mile um, course what i didn't know at the time and this is really an amazing story is about an hour after i got off the phone with him on that thursday the fbi released the images of the two brothers that they thought were the bombers little did we know that that very photograph that my friend david took and had texted to me captured the younger brother walking away on boylston street and he sent it into the fbi it was the clearest highest resolution photo they had at the time and the, fo- the photo went viral for me what it said was that this was a sign that this is exactly what we should be doing and so my next sort of ultra endurance event was was running the 163 mile pan mass challenge which was the f- the furthest i had ever gone at that point and candidly i, I didn't know if i can if i could do the full distance um so early on into this journey into endurance sports
0: isn't that the best though i mean well i mean we could go into any facet of what you what you just went over in the past two minutes but um don't you love the feeling of venturing into the unknown i mean or were you were you concerned i mean it it doesn't you had done 110 mile ultra to start off running. like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could look at it two ways, which is, well, if you've done 110, 163 is not that much more. Or you could say, well, 163 is actually <laughs> a lot more. Well, I didn't actually, I didn't tell many people about it. And I, I think I've evolved as a person and, and we can talk a little bit about this. But at the time, I was really worried that I wasn't going to be able to finish and in my mind, not finishing at that point meant sort of f- failure. And what ended up happening is the folks at the Pan Mass Challenge in the week before the event said, you know, what you're doing is very different and it's unique and we'd like to promote it a little bit because it's a fundraiser. We're trying to raise money for charity. Well, would you mind if we shared your story? Uh, and I was a little reluctant, again, because I didn't know if I could finish, um, and said yes. And they had a few folks call me and ask me a whole bunch of questions. And about two days before I was meant to start, an article went out on ESPN that really caught me off guard. I didn't realize that's what was happening when the folks were calling, asking the questions. But uh, but it went, Rob, from nobody knowing, folks at work didn't know. I sort of kept it under wraps to everybody knew. <laughs> and, and then a sense of pressure developed from that that was uh was pretty intense and it definitely was a a contributor to help help me get through that one
0: try to try to describe that feeling of pressure when everyone knows that you're doing a charity event i've i've had that happen before
1: (laughs) it's it's an interesting
0: uh it's an interesting feeling i don't i don't even know how to explain it honestly i haven't wrote it down yet (laughs)
1: I think it's a combination of there's pressure obviously to raise money because you've you've put yourself out there saying I'm I'm trying to raise money for this for this charitable cause. There's pressure in finishing the race itself. Uh, and it, and for me the goal is always to finish. That that that's the goal. I'm I'm not particularly fast. I'm I'm not looking to win these things. It's can I can I put in the training can I put in the work? Can I tow the line, feeling good, and can I f- and can I finish the race? Um, for for this particular one, and this this was, this was still relatively er- early in this journey into endurance sports for me. Was can I finish? Can I raise the money? But the level of um, boy, I'll tell you when that ar- when that article ESPN, went out, it it, yeah. <laughs> it, re- it really changed the complexity <laughs> of the event itself. Um, fortunately enough, uh, I was able to get through it. I was able to finish. I was able to raise a lot of money for charity, um, but at but that but at that point, I, I still think and thought of success or failure being the finish line. And, and I've really evolved a lot um, since then, and how I think about that.
0: So weird question, but do you think that running for something bigger than yourself affected your athletic performance? Did it help you get to the finish line, even though yeah
1: it, you, it's you know it's um and you and you know because you've just gone through this in the in the heat of the event itself in the moment to moment you're so focused on just one step at a time and progressing forward and working towards the finish line that that you lose sight of that a little bit, but then you're constantly reminded and you know in in this, and this was a couple of years ago, um i re- I remember turning to my brother, who's been uh, sort of crew chief for me and through lots of these races, and he's just he's fantastic. But I remember him, I turned to him and I said, "How much further?" And again, the total distance at that was one hundred and sixty three miles. And he said, "You're almost there." No, <laughs> for those that do endurance no, sports, that's not
0: not a good answer.
1: You're, "You're almost there" can mean lots of different things, and for some reason, <laughs> in my mind, I thought "you're almost there" means two or three miles. And then the next thing out of his mouth was, "You have nine miles to go," and I and I my heart just <laughs> dropped. Um, and then I got a message uh, came through on the text from someone on my crew. And it was someone with the pan mass challenge and, and what happened is they they said, "You know, keep going, congratulations. So many people are rooting for you and then and then you have these moments where you realize, boy there's there's lots of people out there that are rooting for you to do this because it's unique and it's different and trying to raise some money for charity and th- and those are those are really special moments
0: that's i that's what I think so cool is like people are rooting for you, but they're also like rooting for the greater cause, so it's like it's not necessarily. It's like a weird feeling. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I feel yeah, like it's a,
1: it's, a, it's something bigger than you. Yeah, and and you're just you just feel gratitude and fortunate to be part of it. Yeah, even though you're yeah. you're sort of at the center of it, you just you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. That that's a an awesome cause, and that's a crazy story. I mean. I probably have seen that photo that you're talking about. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. And so, what what happened after this? I mean, was it so, confidence, and then wanting to test your limits and push distance, or what? What were you thinking?
1: Well, as you know, there's a there's this natural progression from you do an event, and you change that perspective of what you think is possible, and that leads into the desire to try something bigger and, and, and there's this sequential aspect of it. For me, what happened is after I finished the pan mass challenge, I started thinking about, well, what is next? And then not that long after that, I went, I remember going for a run one day, I got about halfway down the block in my street and I kind of collapsed. And at the moment I had no idea what it was, but I knew something was wrong. Uh, I went to the doctor. They started running all these tests. My mind started going towards all these possibilities. But after a long series of tests, what we determined and found out was I had a very severe case of Lyme disease. Um, And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I I had woken up the following morning after collapsing, and I, I couldn't closed my hands. They, they felt as if they were completely swollen, although they didn't look swollen. And it just spread throughout my entire body. Um, fortunately, the symptoms came on so strong and so severe that we knew something major was wrong. Uh, we're able to identify it. But I went from, gosh, you know, if I, I take you back a couple years before that, 50 pounds overweight, to dropping the weight, feeling great, getting into at that point what I was the best shape of my life, started to get into these ultras, progressively doing longer and longer distances. To getting struck with Lyme disease, and it 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 knocked me back for a couple of years, and and it almost took me right back to square one. Um,
0: so you must have what been on like a trail run at some point and just got got bit or. Had yeah, you had was, this and then it, it didn't flared up or?
1: We really, I mean, the truth is we really don't know. I, I, I live in um, in just outside of Boston and Lyme disease is real here. Um, we have lots of trails in the town that I live in, which is great. And, you know, you people get bitten by ticks. I never got the typical ring that you, you would associate with Lyme disease or anything like that, um, but these symptoms just hit so hard and so fast. I, candidly, at first, I thought I had cancer of some sort, and they're running all these tests, and finally, um, they were able to identify it as Lyme disease. So I'm, I'm fortunate that it was Lyme disease and not something worse, but it, re- it really did a number on me and uh, and set me back.
0: So um, I've, I don't think I've ever shared this before, but uh, during the Thunderbunning 50K, my very first 50K, I had a giant deer tick on the back of my knee. Like I was showering, it was muddy and, uh, we had to put it in a bag. It was kind of like the weirdest situation. Cause we were going to go out and celebrate and go out to dinner. And I found myself at like a CVS pharmacy asking some professional opinion on like, uh, what do I need to do? Um, So I I just have never shared that. Um, But I do remember talking to several people. I mean, I don't mean to get away from the story here, but I mean, I've always been kind of a proponent of putting on some bug spray. If you're going to go in deep woods that are notorious for ticks, like it's just not worth it. I've had Bart Yasso on the podcast before and he's talked about, you know, the difficulties associated with it. And people like you are, you know, showing that you can get through it, obviously, but it's, it's tough. It sounds like,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it really, and I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent on, you know, on bug spray with DEET. And if, if, if you're in trails and there's ticks and I'm, I'm really cognizant of it now, sort of after the fact, but I would say that there was probably, gosh, uh, a two year period there where I didn't do any, anything. Um, it, it was that, real and to that extent, um, I started to feel better and, um, started to train again and with no particular race or goal in mind. And then I said to myself, I need a goal, uh, and I need something to train towards. I I find I tend to do better when I'm training for something Um, I had just gotten through the severe symptoms of the Lyme disease. And so I simply, well, I don't know if you people do this. I went on to Google and I Googled (laughs) kind of like hardest endurance events on the planet. And you have all these things that come up. Um, And I came across this thing called the Triple Crown of 200s. And so I had emailed Candice Burt and said, I'm interested in doing the the triple crown this year. And she replied kind of like, what have you, couple of races, what have you done? And was like, great, like go sign up. Uh, and so <laughs> there's this period from when you're sort of ready to do it, where you stop and you really think it took me about two weeks. Uh, and then I signed up for the triple crown. And, um, and so I spent um, about a year prior to the races last year, having, come off the Lyme disease preparing for and and doing the triple crown last year which was uh which was just for for me it was just an amazing experience and and more so because it was almost a reaffirmation that I was sort of recovered and back from the Lyme disease I was I was myself again if you will
0: I don't want to dig too deep into the triple just because I mean I'm not going to lie, I kind of obsessively talked about it for, I don't know, six months. Yeah. Uh, hopefully hopefully people aren't getting sick of it, but um, I got to ask you, what was mile one of Bigfoot for you? Like, how did that feel? What was going through your head? Because you're running one mile and you know you have 650 miles in front of you. It's just kind of like an enormous situation, and I just like to ask people what they're thinking.
1: Yeah. Um, he- Having never done a two hundred before, and having never really done any mountain races before, I didn't know what I was getting into. And you know, I, I there's a there's a quote that Ross Edgley uses all the time, which is naive enough to start and stubborn enough to finish. And and I love the aspect of that because. I think in many cases, being somewhat naive about some of these races can actually be a huge advantage to you. So I went into Bigfoot really not knowing what I was getting into. Um, I finished Bigfoot, and if someone were to ask me what am I getting into, I would say you have no idea what you're about to get into. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, it's as you know, it's it's an incredible race. It's extremely hard. I don't know if I was really prepared for. The elevation gain and loss in, in my, my sort of memory of, of Bigfoot is captured this way, which was we, we can, you come out of the mountains and you've got that last, I don't remember, like seven miles or so on the road. Um, and I had spent a, a huge number of hours uh, with a, a buddy, Alex, who ended up doing the Triple Crown last year, who also we'll talk about came out and crewed on Uberman. But we're, we're probably five miles from the finish line in Bigfoot. And, and I was at that point struggling. My feet were really starting to hurt. It's and hard. I said, it's hard. Oh, it's hard. And, yeah. I, and I said, I, I just need a minute. And it was the middle of the night and I literally got off that road, Rob, and you know where I'm talking about. And I laid down in a ditch on <laughs> the side of the road and I set an alarm for 10 minutes for a little micro nap. And, and someone said to me, but you were only five miles from the finish or four miles at the time. I can't remember exactly. And I said, I needed to lay in a ditch on the side of the road for ten minutes, just to regroup enough to to get to that finish line. And and like those, you have those moments in these races.
0: That's awesome. I mean, how did the track feel?
1: The track. I don't even remember what it felt like. I was, so, <laughs> it was just so happy to finish. I had, uh, you know, I, I had real. I listen. These races never go perfectly. Things happen. But I personally had really – I had challenges with my feet that started in Bigfoot. Um, They continued through Tahoe. Um, I got major blisters. And and when I got to Moab, I mean I had my feet taped before I even started running in Moab. At mile 100, they were destroyed to the point where I didn't know if I'd be able to finish – I just persevered through. When, when we got to Moab, it, it was uh, a mountaintop checkpoint. We are about 140 miles in. There, there was a guy, Tony, in the race uh, who had a crew of people. And one of, one of the people on his crew was uh, a medic, special forces medic. And I saw him at this checkpoint at the top of the mountain. And he, and he turns to me. He goes, how are you doing? And I go, it was the first time through the whole Triple Crown, despite all these issues with my feet, where I looked at him and I said, I'm not good. My feet are really bad. And he said, I'm going to have Brody help you out. Brody is is this medic. And I will never forget this. Brody took a look at my feet, took a Swiss Army knife, and he sliced the balls of my feet to try and relieve some of the pressure. Someone pinned my legs (laughs) down, my hands behind my head. And that was at mile 140. And from there, we had a hundred miles to go, and you can imagine this was the the last. Agony. This was last year. This was last year's. Moab. So you had
0: you had the headwind for the next thirteen miles into wind whistle, which is agonizing on its own. But you were, oh my gosh!
1: It was. <laughs> it it was one of the most painful experiences I've ever gone through. But again, it, it, it was this reminder that, that we are capable of so much more than we, we think. And candidly, I would never have been able to get through uh, each of those races without the, the medical team there with destination trails. Uh, Christina in particular was just she's an amazing. amazing she, yeah. is, um, she is absolutely amazing. And you know, in Tahoe, I was having issues with the feet and she was fantastic. And, and there were points where I honestly didn't know if I'd be able to continue. And I remember at one checkpoint, she turns to me and she goes, I'll see you at the finish line. And, you know, earlier I talked about David in that, that morning in Starbucks with that sort of affirmational nudge. Yeah. This was another example of this where someone who just sees that, 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 that see the belief in you that says, I'll see you at the finish line. And when I cross the finish line of Tahoe, um i was in tears and she was there and i gave her an enormous hug um and it's it's just a reminder that these endurance events everyone tends to think of them as individual events but they're not they're there's they're team events and it's the people around you in particular your family as you're training and preparing for it and then the races itself whether it be crew or the medical team or the people along the way um they're really amazing experiences.
0: Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I can't believe... I mean, I think it's it's little understood, the physical component. Like, your feet over three consecutive races within 65 days or whatever it is. Like, one blister at mile 50 of Bigfoot turns into a nightmare and in, in Moab. So um i'm glad you got through it it sounds I was, like
1: i i was glad to get through it as well and crossing the final finish line in moab was was a was a really special moment um made made more special by the fact that all of these people that i had met through the triple um were there they 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 f- I took me a long time to get through moab i finished obviously within the cutoff but they had stayed and were waiting at the finish line. And, and to have them there waiting for you was uh, was just, just just terrific. Just terrific.
0: I've said it before. Any, um, any 200-miler, make sure to schedule half a day to hang out at the finish line and just hang out. Have a beer. Cheer people on. It's like I'm... I think I said during one of the races, uh, one of the 200s that I was equally as excited to finish the race myself as I was to hang out at the finish line and cheer people on and hang out and just, yeah, that, that community is the best. So you finish, you know, one of the harder, um, endurance events available to us. That's actually a, you know, an actual, um, a uh, event that's not like an FKT. Where was your mind after the finish? How long did it take you to start looking for that next goal? And sounds like we're very similar. I, if I don't have a goal, I'm lo- I'm a lost individual. I always have to have one, even before a finish line.
1: Yeah, it's um. I just do better when I have a goal, and then I can work backwards and and develop a plan and work with my coach and and have something that every day you're getting up and sort of striving and shooting for. Um after I finished the the Triple Crown, um I was sort of trying to figure out what's next and the the idea of trying to do Badwater 135 was something that I always had thought about. And so I put in for the lottery for Badwater 135. Um I didn't get selected for it, um and I was disappointed but I also understood because Really, I don't have a long running resume of races. I'm, you know, relatively new into the sport. I just I, I I haven't been running long distance races my whole life. But when I didn't get into badwater, I was like, "Oh gosh, you know, what 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 should I what should I do?" So, you know, you go back and you start looking around for different races and and I can't remember exactly what I typed, but I was looking for something other than badwater 135 and what popped up um, through a couple of clicks and searches, was this ultra triathlon called Uberman, where the third leg of the race was the Badwater 135 course, and I said, "Well, well, here we go. <laughs> I'll <laughs> loophole, it, or, uh... I, yeah, I might have to do a swim and a bike beforehand, but I'll get to go to run the Badwater course. So um, I." sent a note to the race director for Uberman and said, Hey, do you have a second? I'd like to talk to you. And, uh, we ended up setting up a call and I called him and I said, you know, tell me about this thing. And he started telling me about it and the distances and, um, asked me what I had done. I told him I just finished this triple crown and he's like, all right. He's like, if you want to do it, I'll, I'll let you in. And then I, it was one of those moments again, where you're like, you stop, let me regroup and actually think about what I'm asking. Um, because it, 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 this was, this was, this was, this is a big race and it's, uh, the, in the swim in particular was for me, not being uh, a real swimmer. I mean, I know how to swim was completely terrifying. Um, and so, let, let me just share the distances of what. Yeah, go go over the background
0: of. of what we're even talking about here and where it's located and stuff. If yeah, you don't mind.
1: So, no, happy to. So, Uberman uh, is an ultra triathlon. Um, it's considered or ranked one of the hardest endurance races uh, in the world. And what, it, in essence, is is a 556 mile uh, race across the ocean. Mountains and desert of Southern California. Uh, it starts with a 21-mile open-ocean swim, which goes from Catalina Island off the coast of Cal- California, off the coast of Los Angeles specifically, to Palos Verdes. Uh, from there, it's that a is four insane. <laughs> it, it is. You it,
0: just like glossed over that one, like. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, well, so I'll, I'll, we'll come back. So let's put a pin in that. So 21-mile open ocean swim, uh, which happens to be mostly at night uh, because of the current. So we can talk a little bit about that. Perfect. From there, it's a 400-mile bike up the coast of Los Angeles and across the, uh, the LA mountain range. Um, so it's got 20,000 vertical feet of, of climbing. Uh, you come over the mountain range, and then you drop down into Death Valley Uh, And the bike continues across uh, Death Valley going west to east uh, until you get to Badwater Basin. Um, At Badwater Basin, you switch to the run. And in essence, you follow the Badwater 135 run course across Death Valley, the mountain ranges. And then you climb uh, up Mount Whitney to the finish line at the trailhead atop of Mount Whitney. Um, So in in total, it's a 556-mile race that starts... With a 21 mile open ocean swim,
0: do do they offer a double Uberman? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane.
1: Next that's, year, next year. <laughs> so I've never, I've never heard anyone actually say do they offer a double. <laughs> <Uberman?"> <laughs> I can talk to uh, to the Rob, the race director, and get
0: get 50 off your second Uberman. Um,
1: yeah. Well, here's the thing about Uberman is there's there's no entry fee. Oh. It's uh okay. it's 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 um Rob Berku, who is the sort of director of this. It's it's not sort of a sanctioned race per se. Um and he describes it as an odyssey. And I, and I actually think that's a good description. It, it's it's more of an odyssey than it is uh, a race. Um there's it's only been going on for a couple of years. Um I think there's been three people in the world who have ever um finished the race. And the swim is the big challenge for most people. Um, it, it's a very long swim. We started at nine thirty at night um, off of Catalina Island, and you start at night because of the way that the currents work, and so you're trying to to get ahead of the currents that really pick up um, in the early or midday uh, kind of time frame. So, so I started. Is there a start ahead. line? um most what, like a start people...
0: gun like are are the other competitors like left of you right of you like is it anything normal in terms of a start or are you just solo
1: there's not much that's normal in this race to begin with so um what what ends up happening is the catalina channel swim is actually um, a very famous swim it's one of what they call the seven great swims of the world It includes the english channel and um and others Um, Most of the people that do the the Catalina Swim Channel leave from um, an area called Doctor's Cove. And so you leave from Doctor's Cove. The folks that were doing the race this year, we all left within um, about an hour of each other, but it's not um, a gun goes off and we all started at the same time you're required to have a boat and a captain uh, for safety reasons obviously and so you're really at the discretion of your boat and captain as to when when you actually start so um, we were all in the vicinity of each other but interestingly enough uh, during the swim i actually didn't see any of the others there was three of us this year that did the race um, but we all started within plus or minus an hour of each other
0: So. I mean I have a unfortunate um fear of sharks. Which I think which I think I'll get over, but I know that they're like somewhat nocturnal feeding and uh I mean, did you have anything bumping into you at all? Twenty-one miles and this is like pretty open ocean, right?
1: This is this is as open ocean as you could imagine, and I had I have never done anything like this before <laughs> um i i i did train for it i trained hard um the furthest i had ever swum prior to the actual race itself was a little bit short of 10 miles um most most of my training was in um uh, a nearby lake so i i've i've never really done an ocean swim um i've never done a night ocean swim before and <laughs> You know the 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 moment where you jump off the boat, so what ends up happening is you jump off the back of the boat, you swim to the shore at this doctor's Cove in Catalina, you get out of the water, you put your hands up, and then you drop your hands, and that signifies a sort of start the clock it's a running clock through this entire race it it never stops um, and we hit the water, and it's terrifying. I don't know how to describe it. It's a terrifying feeling because you're in the pitch black ocean. There's no lights. It's very hard to discern the difference between the ocean and the sky. And you just start swimming and you know, there's stuff in there. I like to describe it as wildlife and not more (laughs) specific than just that. Um, it, it turns out that, that, Uh, About three days before we began, there was actually a shark attack right off Catalina where a person was in their kayak. Uh, A great white came up, grabbed the front of the kayak. Uh, He wasn't hurt, but grabbed the kayak and let it go. But the shark left two teeth, um, and they estimated it to be a 19-foot great white shark. So it's one of those things that you know the odds are very low, but they're not zero. And...
0: You're sw- not you're not you know helping your your odds by well first of all being out at night and then are you in a wetsuit?
1: Yeah, so if you're doing an official Catalina swim crossing, it's it's no wetsuits. Um, in this race, you're allowed to use your wetsuit. So we did. The water was about sixty-four degrees. Um, so you have your your wetsuit on. So you look and- like a seal. There's, you look, you look like a seal, there's but great white
0: sharks in the area. This is crazy. How do you even know what direction to go? By the way, like, is, so it, is there a is, light somewhere? Like, yeah, it
1: is. You lo- So I learned a lot about it. There, there's a gentleman in uh, who lives in town with me who has. Um, he's an ocean, um, open water swimmer. He's done the, um, the English Channel, and he was a ter- terrific resource about all the little things that you just don't know. So. What, what, it, what you have is you have your boat and a captain and what they're doing is they're plotting your course and they're adjusting for currents and they're keeping their eyes open for, um, let's say, let's call it wild, potential wildlife. Wild, <laughs> potential wildlife. <laughs> and then you have, um, I had a, a crew, I had my, my brother, um, a, a very good friend, John, and, uh, another gentleman, Rob, on my crew for the, for the s- swim portion. And they would take turns on a kayak, um, next to me and so we had glow sticks on the kayak and that was our sort of light source I had a little green blinky light that would attach to my goggles so that was their only way that they could see me and in essence what you do is you swim along and as you're breathing and I I bilateral breathe meaning I breathe from both sides as I look I want to make sure I'm keeping the boat kind of to my left and the kayak to my right. Um, but there were times early on where I was, I was really veering off course. It's a very disorienting feeling out there, and so they would sort of direct you. Um, the most interesting part of the swim was this, this tug of war that takes place in your mind where you're swimming along, and it's pitch black, and there's what's known as bioluminescence, and the water around you is literally glowing um it's really hard to describe and it's you're gliding along and it's it's one of these it's an incredibly peaceful experience and then you bump into something and you have no idea what you've bumped into but it's <laughs> something and that and that reminder that there's wildlife there takes over and it's this back and forth that goes goes through your head so it goes um, from
0: like the beauty of life of Pi, when he's in the boat essentially and uh,
1: <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: back yeah, to like uh
1: <laughs> there's so, something there
0: <laughs> that's yeah. that's phenomenal like i i paint such a vivid picture it's pretty amazing so how many hours did it take you to do this you said it's 21 miles
1: it's 21 miles that's uh, it amazing. took me it took me 13 hours and 45 minutes to do the swim um, and we, we went at a pretty consistent pace throughout. Um, it's, you can't really hear anything as you're swimming because you're in the ocean and whatnot. And so what they, my crew would do is every 30 minutes they would blow a whistle. And I would hear this sort of faint whistle. And the person who was in the kayak would come up to me with a bottle. So I was feeding every 30 minutes. And uh, I started at nine um, 9.30 p.m on a Wednesday evening and I finished the following morning at, um, 1115. So it was a 13 hour and 45 minutes. So swim how, do you, how
0: do you judge, uh, hydration when you're um, in a wetsuit, you're in salt
1: water, like, yeah, I, so for, for this, the swim was a hundred percent new to me. It was a foreign experience, especially being in the ocean. And so, I referred to people that I came in contact with that are long-distance ocean swimmers, and I just picked their brains. And the the common theme I heard amongst the the few folks that have done this that I had a chance to talk to was, you feed every 30 minutes, and uh, so and it's we did calories. Really, it's more. It's more than just anything. it's calories, and you're going to be calorie depleted. You're you're probably burning a good 600 plus calories per hour. And it's, it's, as you know, it's kind of hard to digest much more than 300 or so. So it was every 30 minutes taking something down, um, mostly fluid, but as the night progressed, um, it became some more solid food, but it was this idea of just, you know, keep, keep feeding the beast every 30 minutes and get through.
0: I mean, last question to hear on the swim, like what was, what's like your big memory when you think of that swim? And then how did you feel getting out of the water after 13, more than 13 hours of swimming? <laughs>
1: um, the, the thing that I, I, I the, the swim, you're very focused during the swim, right? Because it's just such a new experience to you. But the thing that I I really remember was as the sun was starting to come up the next morning and all of a sudden now what seemed pitch black in the, in the, in the water now became vivid and you, you could see fish going under you and whatnot. And you start to get to the point where you can just make out the shoreline. Um, and you see the shore and it's this sense of, I can see the shore, I I, I dare say, I'm going to say it again, you're almost there, but yet you're like seven miles away. And because the way that the currents work, the currents get the most severe in that last stretch. The wind starts to pick up and it's pulling south and the currents are pulling south and the chop became much, much harder. And so that those last six, seven miles where you see the shore... And you have this sense that you're almost there. We're, we're really difficult miles and and it, and it takes a long time. And then you finally kind of get through that and, and you're getting close to the shore. And that when you get to the shore, it's really rocky and you haven't used your legs really for so long. So just literally getting up through the rocks to the shoreline was, was a struggle, but I, uh, but we did it and we got there, um, what I ended up doing was, when you get to the shore, actually cleared the water, which is sort of the s- signal that you've made the full crossing. I went back into the water, swam back to the boat, um, because you want to be with your crew. It's really such a team effort to get through something like this. And so I went back to the boat, we took the boat back to the pier um, to the pier. Um, I had about a 40 it's about a 45 minute or so boat ride back to the pier. And I actually used that to sleep., Yeah. Um, I got a, I, a good forty five minute nap in. We got back to the pier, and then we went and picked up, I changed, We picked up the bikes and uh, ate something and got geared up. And most people that have done the uh, this Uberman race take a a fairly lengthy period between the swim and the bike to to regroup. Um, I actually felt surprisingly good, much better than what I thought I would. And so, from the time I cleared the water to the time I got on my bike to start the bike was a little bit under three hours, and and we were off on the bike.
0: And so, you have a four hundred mile bike ride.
1: A four hundred mile bike ahead.
0: How? I mean, what are what are you thinking at that point? You just trying to hold it together, like you just did some epic swim. Like, are you excited? to actually hit the bike? Are you like nervous?
1: I was excited to finish the swim. Uh, The swim portion of this (laughs) race was for, I'll speak for myself being someone who's not a swimmer per se. Like I didn't grow up swimming in high school or college or anything like that. Um, I mean, obviously I know how to swim and I trained, I trained heavily on the swim the six months prior, but getting through the swim for me personally, was a major, major accomplishment. Um, I was expecting to get through the swim. I thought it would take me longer than it actually did. And I was also expecting to be physically just wrecked coming out of the water. And I I actually felt surprisingly good. So I was, I was ecstatic to get through the swim. And the fact that I felt fairly good and was able to get on the bike so quickly um, was really motivating. Now, the first, I would say hundred miles or so, um, of the bike is basically up the coast of Los Angeles. So you're dealing with city traffic and you have to be really, really, um, aware of the traffic conditions. And there's lots of turns and, and whatnot to get through. Once you get through that first hundred miles and my first mental checkpoint, cause we started in Palos Verdes was to get to the pier in Malibu. In my, in my mind, I had set these sort of, um, informal checkpoints along the way this is not like a traditional race where it's you know you have your formal checkpoints it's you the bike is you start in palos verdes and you go 400 miles and you finish in Badwater basin and there is a course per se that you have to follow in terms of roads but there's no formal checkpoints so i created my own checkpoints um that my crew and i were like let's get to there and then we'll regroup um but but if I could get through that first hundred miles of city, then we get into much more remote country where we start to hit the hills. So, um,
0: were you ever like in Malibu at a stoplight and look over and someone's looking at you, like what? What is wrong with this person? Yeah. And you look at them like you have no idea what I've been through. <laughs> like-
1: yeah, it's 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 a it's funny because if you were in a car, you would look and you'd see like. A guy on his bike riding his bike, and you would I, we'd never think about. It. You would have no idea um, <laughs> <laughs> that we just swam from Catalina to get to, <laughs> to the shore, and now we're on our bike. Um, it's uh, it's. I mean, this is it's an event. It's an odyssey. It, yes, I guess it's a race, but you're it's it's you and your crew, and it's um, and you're just kind of you're trying to get through it. You're trying to get through the event. So I had a I had a, a good swim, much better than I. That I thought I could do. I felt good coming out of the water. I hit the bike. I felt pretty good on the bike. And we just kept plugging away on the bike. Um, once you get through the first hundred miles, you start to hit the mountains. And, and there are some real serious hills um, that you go. As, as I said, it's about 20,000 cumulative uh, feet of climbing uh, through the mountains. And we just kept plugging away at it, kind of going checkpoint to checkpoint that I had you know, created informally in my mind as to where I wanted to get through. Um, I ended up coming in to uh, Death Valley on the bike, um, feeling pretty good. And, And, you know, as you know, in these endurance races, you have time to think. And as I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking about how much further we have until we get to Badwater Basin, this thought goes into my mind that says, you know, if you push it, you might be able to break 50 hours. Now, 50 hours doesn't mean anything. It's just a random, arbitrary number. But, I don't know, you start to play these games with yourself, yeah. and it's scorching hot in the desert, and you're on your bike, and and you're just like, well, maybe I, maybe I could. And then you start – That's why I pushed myself a little bit harder, and it, it was actually great. And I came into Badwater Basin. Um, I was flying coming into the last section because I knew it was going to be close to 50 hours. And, again – Fifty hours didn't mean anything. It's, it just meant nothing. <laughs> but I ended up finishing the bike in forty nine hours, fifty nine minutes, and I think it was forty three seconds. And uh, and it was just again one of these like small victories within a much rather uh, bigger event. Um, then I ended up finishing the bike in just a little bit under 50 hours.
0: There was there was one person in the whole world that was super stoked that you cracked 50 hours.
1: <laughs> it was no nobody. It, it was maybe, you. It was, <laughs> it was me, I guess. But it was uh, yeah. So we um so the we 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 went through the we went through the bike and um and and, the, and so I found myself now where the swim went sort of better than I had expected and the bike went kind of better than I expected. Um, we, we didn't, we, amazingly, I didn't have any, I didn't end up getting a flat tire at all through the bike. Um, we got lost a couple little points, but nothing so severe that it would throw you off. And so, um, the, the goal through the whole race, but each of the segments was just to try and be consistent and, and steady. And, and candidly, I had an amazing crew. I had my brother who had been with me through points of the Triple Crown, who had been with me to do the Pan Mass Challenge. Um, And I had a very good friend, John. And uh, the two of them in a minivan were my crew through the entire race. Um, Some of the other people had much bigger teams and multiple vehicles and and whatnot. But I I cannot say enough how good they were because they're just as sleep-deprived as you are um and they were just they were remarkable and it was because of them that things went as smoothly as it did
0: i i mean of all the events i've heard of so far crew seems to be pretty vital here like the
1: crew is crew is, between the anyways. swim
0: and then if you blow a tire or directions and then we all know bad water like getting just getting through there
1: yeah it's it's imp- it's an impossible event to do without a crew, um, and I, I well, and don't, I had a don't
0: say that or we'll have well we we'll have I, someone else. try.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. You're you're right. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but I'll speak for myself. Like I'm like I'm a middle aged father of four, and uh, my goal is just to get through these things. And um, and my crew was phenomenal, and I and I owe all the success that we have or had to them. Um, so That's amazing. We, we we finished the bike and, um, we said, okay, we're going to use this as a, a checkpoint. And, um, so I got, uh, I got about an hour and a half sleep or so there and, and we regrouped and we ate and whatnot. Um, and then it was about from the time I finished the bike to the time I started the run was, was about four hours. And that was kind of the longest break we had through the whole race. Um, and so we, we, started in Badwater Basin, in essence on the Badwater 135 uh course. Um I started the uh I finished the the bike around four fifteen or so, and so it was about eight something when we ended up starting the run. Uh so it was dark. So the first part of the run was actually at night, which was quite nice because as you know, it can get Yeah. yeah, it can get pretty pretty hot in Death Valley. Um so the first the first night was the first leg. You go from Badwater Basin to Furnace Creek, and and you work your way to uh, Stovepipe Wells. Uh, And so I I went pretty consistently through that. Uh, From Stovepipe Wells on, the next stretch is a very long, I think it's 18 miles, that is just straight up hills. And unfortunately, the way that the timing worked was I started that uh, in the morning and pretty much had that stretch during the heat of the day, that was a tough stretch, uh, for, without question. Um, but continued to push, made it through that, got to the top of of town pass. Um, t- from town pass down towards Panama Springs is is fairly downhill, uh, so you get to move a little bit, and got to the bottom of the hill there, and you know. What I learned in and through the Triple Crown is I learned all about hallucinations, which I had never experienced before. Uh, and I also learned how to deal with hallucinations and ha- and how to deal with sleep deprivation. And so my experience having gone through the Triple Crown the year before was invaluable when it came to Uberman on how to deal with lack of sleep and little sleep and working through that um, the i got to the bottom of the hill in panama springs i was literally hallucinating and it was one of those moments where i'm like i just need to i just need to stop and sleep and so we used that as a kind of informal checkpoint and and i slept there for a little bit um
0: sorry i can't have an episode with hallucinations without um hearing a little bit more detail
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i guess everyone's hallucinations are different my um, back from the triple crown, it was, um, it was in Bigfoot where I had my first ones and I had never experienced that before. Um, I, I for me personally, it's me right around yeah. 45 hours, 45 to 50 hours is where with no sleep, I start to hallucinate. And I, and I remember cause I, I was working, uh, with Jeff, uh, Browning, who was helping me coach a little bit. He's known as Bronco Belly, Um, and, in going into the into bigfoot last year he said when you start to hallucinate just lay down in the trail and take a little nap and all you sound, need is about 15 advice. or 20 minutes yeah, yeah it sounded yeah. it's great advice 15 yeah. or 20 minutes and you just regroup and then you can keep going and i remember um, i remember in in our debrief after the the bigfoot race uh, and I was explaining to him how I was hallucinating, and I was—I remember coming down this very steep hill, and I would look in the in the in the woods, and what I saw were, um, like miniature cars that were gold plated, and people laying all around them, and I-, I don't know what it means, but it was so real. I mean, like, and you know, it's not real, but it was so real. And in the debrief after the race, Jeff said to me, "Well, well, why didn't you just?" lay down in the dirt and sleep like we talked about. And I said, Jeff, you're in the middle of the cascade mountains. You're 50 miles from like the nearest civilization. there's, there's bear shit everywhere. You know, there's animals everywhere. Like it's really easy to just tell somebody just lay down in the dirt and take a nap. But if you've never done it before, it's hard to do. And so like, I, I, I battled with hallucinations to get to the next checkpoint and what I realized after that is that you just have to just let it all go and lay down in the dirt you do and, and sleep yeah. and it yeah. and it works and it's amazing embrace but it <laughs> if, oh you have to embrace it but if you've never done it it's i know it sounds easier than it is and so in in Uberman when I got to the bottom of the hill there near Panamint Springs the hallucinations were starting and I, and I just knew, and I'm like, I need to sleep. And so we use that as a checkpoint. Uh, it was the middle of the night. I was four days into the race at this point. Um, it was probably, I don't know, two, two thirty in the morning. And, and then it was right at the point where my friend Alex, who lives in San Diego, who did the triple crown last year as well. I had reached out to him before Uberman and, and said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Is there any way you could come and just crew for part of it be a part of it i would just love it he drove up from san diego with a friend of his vince and he and he met us in the middle of death valley again we were four days into the race probably 2 30 in the morning and uh, and they were with us for the last uh the last day or so um, when they met us i had just gotten up from this little nap and and what i'm a, what i'm going to tell you is a, is a story about vince I've n- i had never met vince before in my life rob Alex gets there and he says to Vince, he goes, why don't you run with Adam for a little bit? And I said, great. Now, this is the first time in the race that I had anybody next to me while I was going. So um, I, I didn't have a huge crew with people who were biking with me or anything like that. My crew was with me, but they were in the car. So this is the first time I actually had somebody next to me. And it was nice because we could talk.
0: So you can and have so a pacer throughout the whole thing? I did not. But, um, but you could you hypothetically could.
1: Uh, you you at you could I someone did, could swim
0: I, next to you bike next to you and run next to you the whole time.
1: Um, yeah, I mean theoretically you could. And, Interesting. Um, I, I didn't because I just I don't know we had a we had a small group of people and it so this is had. the first
0: first time with someone running next to you or being next to you really.
1: Yeah, it was the first time, and so all of a sudden you're like, great, I have somebody to talk to. So I was like, hi, and and I'd never met Vince before, and. He was so excited to just be part of it, and, and and I was so grateful that he came up. And and I just I, – I know Alex is is such an endurance guy, and he had done the triple crown. And I just I, – so I said to Vince, I'm like, so, like, what, what races have you done, right? Kind of like a natural question. And he goes, well, nothing. And I go, what do you mean nothing? He goes, I'm not really a runner. And I go <laughs> – it's three o'clock in the morning. We're in the middle of Death Valley. You're sitting here, running next to me. I go, "What have you done?" He goes, "He goes, I I did a half marathon last year. That's the furthest I've ever gone." And I'm like, "Okay, this is great." I go, "What did Alex tell you?" And he says to me, "He goes, well, he said, I got a buddy who's doing this ultra triathlon called Uberman. It's in Death Valley. It's an amazing location. Just come along. It'll be a, such a good experience." And Vince says to Alex, he said, well, what am I going to have to do? And Alex replies, well, you're probably just going to have to hand him some food out the car window now and then. And he's like, well, I can do that. And he says, he says, well, what should I bring? And Alex says, just bring a pair of sneakers and I have everything else. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so they get there and, and Alex says, Vince, why don't you run with him for a little bit? So we're chatting. And he's like, I've, I've done it. I did a half marathon. And we're coming up this hill. And Rob, there's a sign, a street sign on the, on, on the hill. And it says, it's the, the windy road sign,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: says seven miles. <laughs> and I see the sign, and he sees the sign, and I recognize that he sees the sign, and he looks at me, and it's, it's just silent. And I said to him, I go, seven miles. I bet you're saying to yourself right now, shit, seven miles. I've never done more than 13, and now I'm going seven miles uphill, but I can't say anything because he's been going for four days. And so I'm just going to keep crying. He goes, yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. So let me, let me, let me take this story and and cut it short. Right. In the 20 last 24 hours of the race, this guy vents ends up on and off next to me and does 48 miles. Thirteen of which are the last thirteen miles that goes from Lone Pine up Mount Whitney to 8,400 feet, where the trailhead finish line of the race is. Somebody who had never done more than 13 miles in his life a year ago ends up doing 48 miles.
0: I'm just smiling, by the way. <laughs> right? it's, amazing. And, and,
1: it's amazing, and this just like I, you know, sort of came into this endurance world going from not much to this 110 miler, the next day I, I we, fin- we, we finished race, the next day we talked to Vince and he says, the last 24 hours has changed my life. It has fundamentally reshaped what I believe is possible. That's awesome. And, and to me, of this entire Uberman experience, it was, it was amazing to go through it. It was incredible to finish. I ended up exceeding even what I thought was possible. I ended up finishing the race in 125 hours and 45 minutes, um, which was 41 hours better than the previous course record. But for all of that, the thing that I take away is this story of Vince doing 48 miles on, those, on that last day. And it's just it's just another example of this extraordinary ability that, that all of us have that we're sitting on this enormous, like untapped reservoir of human potential with the power to achieve so much more than we think we can. And it's, it comes down, I I think to two things, which is mindset. And I'm a huge believer in mindset and the fact that, the boundaries of these limits that we set for ourselves um, really comes down to what the mind believes is possible, and then the willingness and the enthusiasm to to do the work and to pursue them. And the story of Vince is just really encapsulates that for me.
0: I couldn't agree more. I got I got lucky because reading Ultra Marathon Man, I came across the line perceived limitations I think is what Dean wrote and then I kind of that kind of like cracked the code for me personally when I realized like limits are a perception so depending on how the mind you know perceives things you can actually alter limits and then all of a sudden it, limits became kind of like a, a within yourself like how you perceive it and that's I awesome think
1: that's, I think it's true I mean i I have this this phrase I use that it's called other side of limits. And it's, it's this idea of we put these preconceived limiters exactly. on ourselves. Yeah. And and the question is, well, what does it take to get to the other side of those preconceived limits? And um, what I've come to realize personally is I think a lot of the limits, if you will, that we put on our comes down to, Fear of failure and worry about kind of the judgment of others. What are other people going to say? Exactly. And, um, and, and fear of failure, and we talked about this earlier a little bit, and, and it used to be like this for me too, was not finishing, not getting to the, fin- to the finish line. And I've fundamentally reshaped the way I think about this now, where I've redefined success and failure as success to me is the pursuit of the goal. And, and it's the process of becoming what you aspire to be, but the pursuit of the goal. And as long as you are working hard towards that goal and you're willing to commit and you're willing to try and you're pursuing it, then by the very definition is you cannot fail. And I, I, I've, I've come to realize that what holds so many people back is that fear of failure. And if you just switch it and say, the hell with it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set these goals And regardless of the outcome, the pursuit of this thing is the success. is uh, It's a really liberating and powerful way to approach things.
0: So, the training, enjoying enjoying your training.
1: It is, but it is enjoying the training. It's uh, it's enjoying the process. Yeah, it's it's the the willingness to put the work in. It's the struggle day in and day out. Like you, you come to you come to embrace it and when you when you think about it in the in the context of of mindset and uh, you know I've done I've done a lot of reading and a lot of work on like mindset I'm a huge believer in mindset it's it's the day-to-day training while it's physical training it's actually mindset training so that yeah. when you get into those hard times and I've been in some really bad scenarios it's it's how do you keep pushing forward
0: That's exactly right. I I mean I couldn't agree more with just about everything you're saying. And I mean, it's a good reminder too for the listener. Like, when you have a bad run and you're out there, and you, I don't know, bonk on a long run, and you find yourself walking and desperate. Like, just remind yourself, like, you know, it's just a training run. Yeah, you know, I, I much rather have horrible training runs than horrible races. So it's it always humbles me and reminds me to be thankful for the good ones. So. I got to ask you what what is next for you and I want you to also kind of recommend cuz I know you're still savoring this. This was only what a few weeks ago, did you say?
1: Yeah, it was uh I finished um little yeah, it was a little over 2 weeks ago now. Jeez. So
0: it seems like it was all, it was longer. That's weird. Um yeah. I'm glad we touched base so quickly then. Um yeah. but I want to know kind of what you're thinking about, like how you're setting your goal next, so you don't go through those post race blues. But then also, lastly, I want you to finish on uh, like recommendations on anyone out there thinking about tackling either the Triple Crown or Uberman.
1: Yeah. Um, so I get asked a lot what's next. And Part a, of me it's feels it's a bad it, question, it, it, I'm sorry. Well, no, I guess it, it, but it's I I don't know if it's a good question or a bad question, but I understand why people would ask. Like, what's next? And part of me feels really compelled to have a great answer to that question. The truth is right now, I, I just I just don't. This this race in particular was a monumental effort to prepare for. And um, my wife is phenomenal to put up with all the training that and the sacrifices that she has to make uh i have four kids that they have to make in order to prepare for something like this and yeah you know, it makes sense I, I i got an invitation the other day to go down uh to do the brazil 135 in january and i i said thank you for the invitation i'm, I'm honored but it's preparing for races like this. It's not just the training, but you're always thinking about it and planning for it. And and there's this distraction. And so it puts a huge toll on your family. And so for me right now, it's not what's next in terms of the race. It's, it's, it's spending time with my wife and my kids and just in, in sort of in savoring and enjoying this. And I'm sure something will come. And these races have a way sometimes of finding you and, um, but I don't have a good answer to that question. No, that was um, a,
0: that was a great answer. I'm always a big proponent of enjoying the recovery too. Like it's a great opportunity to like, you know, catch up where you miss moments if you can. So, um, I mean, really quick though, how does the triple crown compare to Uberman?
1: They're so different. They're they're just. I mean. The triple crown is, uh, obviously it's all running. It's all mountain trails. There's an enormous amount of elevation. Um, it's a, it's a very rocky course through the three different races. Uh, and it just does, it does a huge number on your, um, on your, for me in particular, my feet. So when I, when I finished each of the three races in the triple crown and finished the third Moab in particular, um, I was I was wrecked. I was physically wrecked, and my feet were just destroyed. Um, it's a very different series of races than what Uberman is. So going into Uberman is obviously I was swimming a lot in the training for that. Um, I was biking a lot, and, and biking uses very different muscles than just running. So going into Uberman, I honestly I think I was in better overall shape. Um, I was in much better balance, if you will, because swimming is obviously upper body. Um, if all you're doing is running, you have a tendency to get a little bit out or you can get a little bit out of balance, which is why cross training when you're running is really important. But um, I was in much more overall balance going into Uberman. And so when I finished Uberman, um, I was actually in really good condition. I was expecting to be wrecked at the race, but I was pretty good. So I ended up finishing Uberman. Um, in the wee hours of Monday morning, early Tuesday. Uh, we slept for a while. We drove back to Los Angeles Tuesday afternoon. Um, Wednesday morning, I was on an 815 flight back to Boston, where I live from LA. And um, Thursday morning, I was on the train heading into work in the city. And I, I saw a friend of mine on the train. And he looks at me and because he, cause he had saw the the, the the post that I finished. And he's like, What are you doing? You're like (laughs) you're you're on the train. I was like, yeah, I'm going. I'm going back. I'm going to work. So, um, and that was uh, what was that? Um, That was like the second day after finishing. So, um, I actually felt fairly good after Uberman, and I think I was. I think I trained well. I think it was more balanced. They're two totally different races. I I would say to to folks that are listening, whether it's uh, a five k, whether it's a marathon. Whether it's a hundred miler or a 200 miler or something as crazy as, you know, a 556 mile race across the ocean, mountains and deserts of Southern California. The short answer is find something that you want to do, that you're passionate about and just bloody well start because these, these things have a way of just momentum starts to build on itself and, and That momentum creates an an excitement, and you start working towards it, and you get to the race, and you never know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to finish. The short answer is, it really doesn't matter. You end up you end up enjoying the experience and the pursuit of preparing and getting in better shape and going after these goals, regardless. And if you're fortunate enough to get to the finish line, remember. That you're only going to be at that finish line for a couple of moments and while those few minutes are really special they're just a couple of minutes and what you're going to take away from them is the experience of the training the journey of preparing the race itself and maybe a good way to close is what we started with is the people you meet along the way and the camaraderie of your team and the overall experience and, and for me I just, I love that aspect. So I know there'll be something that will come that will be next. I don't know what it is right now. Um, if folks that are listening, have an idea, I, I thought about just doing a poll out and saying, <laughs> what do you think? And I'm, I'm willing to consider, but, uh, um, but right now I'm just in, in, enjoying, um, having gotten through this last race, uh, finishing, um, exceeding what I thought I could do and, uh, and, and, and. Putting up a a pretty good time, I think. What you're going to find, though, is some real elite athletes are going to start to look at things like Uberman and races like this, and uh, and they're going to blow my time out of the water. But for the time being, I'm I'm happy to. I'm I'm happy to hold the course record until some (laughs) some some real serious people. Oh yeah, you knocked
0: 41 hours off, so that's always a, a good start for people to show them what's possible. I really enjoyed the conversation. We'll have to stay in touch. We probably shouldn't have beers together because the ideas that we will come up with within endurance. um,
1: Yeah, I'll be—I'm a bad influence. Our
0: our poor children will never see us. Um, But (laughs) stay in touch. Where, Where can people follow you on social media?
1: Um, yeah, you can just, so I'm, I've got uh, an Instagram account. I don't have a lot of followers. I, just, I don't post a ton, but you can, you can find me there. It's, uh, my name, which is Adam. Last name is Scully power. So it's S C U L L Y Scully hyphen power P is in Peter O W E R. Um, so find me there, Facebook. Um, and then in the, uh, in the corporate world, it's, uh, the same thing. You can find me on LinkedIn. So. Great. happy to, happy to connect with anyone and if anyone has questions about the races or, or whatnot um, i'm more than happy to, to lend a hand if i can
0: well i really appreciated your time and and thanks for all those cool stories i enjoyed it all right
1: thanks rob really enjoyed being here
0: all right and that was episode 116 i hope you guys enjoyed it make sure to check out adam on instagram social media big thank you to him for his time and yeah, thank you to the show sponsors, Hammer Nutrition, Fest Beer, Exoskin, Destination Trail, Ultimate Direction. Big shout out to the Patreon crew. Maybe we'll do a group run tomorrow on uh, our closed Facebook group. And then, yeah, the wrap is available, Train for Ultra Wrap with custom logo. And my book's available on Audible and iTunes. And yeah, just really appreciate you guys. Don't forget to enjoy your training. Have a good week.